introduction. Yeah. And, and Martin, you might just want to delete this right now because it could be great. <laughs> oh. Well, hi, everyone. I'm with Phil today. It's Brett here. G'day, Phil. Hey, g'day, Brett. Good to see you in sunny Melbourne. Mm, indeed it is. What a surprise. Mm. Um, so today, oh, I should say, of course, this is the Infectious Trauma Matters podcast, but people will probably work that out by now. We thought we'd just do something a bit different today because we got chatting a bit earlier and um, come up with this idea of what would be in your wish list if you were uh, in different roles. If you could imagine of anything, what would it be? So we thought we'd just have a bit of a quick chinwag about um, our ideas about a wish list. So, Phil, if you were leading an infection control team in a hospital now, in that role, what would be one thing that you wish you could have? You could conjure up anything. If I could design anything in the hospital, if, if anything. anything at all, anything, anything at all, if I was not see. Uh, so I'll qualify this, these statements by saying it is some time since I've worked in a, in a, in a, in a hospital setting, a healthcare setting, so um, forgive me for that. But I, I would think I would love that all data was electronic yeah, and I had a artificial intelligence platform that was able to flag to me every individual patient's risk of infection and type of infection, and then produce a suite of interventions that should be implemented, tailor made for that patient on that day. Wow, that's a wish list. Hey, that's not a bad idea, though. I mean, I kind of thought you'd come up with something to do with surveillance because that's what you're burdened by, but, but that's fair enough. Yeah, I mean, there's a bit of surveillance in there, but um, there's also, well, I think the, the, the key attraction would be the timeliness of the information yeah. and the ability to tailor-make interventions because... Um, was my, you know, perhaps not the one blanket intervention is going to be as effective for everybody. Yeah. So I think we need to <clears throat> think about tailoring certain interventions. So we're going to mm. identify the patients, the risks, the type, and then what to do. So we're kind of getting that way with some programs that integrate. Well, there are electronic medical records in lots of hospitals now, but the integration of that uh, with other systems, pathology, the timeless delays, um, so it's basically what you want to do is fast forward for the next 25 years and hopefully that's where we'll be. So can I just extend it a little bit more yeah. then? In which case, um, I, you know, the, the hospital, let's just assume that we've got perfect electronic data in the healthcare settings. Yeah. Uh, and the extension of that then, of course, is perfect electronic data in primary care mm. and pharmacies. So... We could do all that drilling down on risk factors from both in the community and also in the health setting and bring mm. them all together. Mm. Do you well, know that? I like that idea. Now, you touched on something earlier, it might have been the artificial intelligence side. And I suspect that's going to be some area that we, that we see a bit more involvement with when it comes to algorithms and surveillance. All right, so that's your wish list. Is that okay? You had, have you got a wish list? Yeah, well, my wish list in that same context, um, I would like to be able to know 
almost in real time when someone has an infection, so absolute rapid diagnosis, diagnostics, coupled with real-time genomics. Nice. So, and when I say real-time, I mean literally like real-time, not I know it's, it's getting less and less uh, and, and weeks have become days in some instances when it comes to genomics, but I'm actually saying, you know, you're Mr. Smith and you're starting to get a runny nose and I can immediately identify the pathogen and with through genomics where you got that through. And part of the reason that I like that idea is because we have a challenge, I think, in IPC where there's always this delayed effect yes. of when something isn't quite done 100%. And, and, and when I say this, I'm not talking about in a punitive way with this sort of approach, but rather, you know, when we were chatting earlier, I said, gave the example where if someone was to give someone 100 milligrams of IV morphine now, you'd see the effect of it, right? And there would be, you'd know the consequence of that straight away. And therefore, there's all these safety things put in to stop that kind of thing from happening. If I don't perform a technique properly uh, with a central line, for example, and I contaminate the line and someone gets an infection four days later, uh, there's this sort of delayed effect. And we as humans don't really respond that well, I don't think, when there's a delayed mm. effect, <clears throat> when there's an immediate response. It's like if, if I said to you, Phil, Smoking, you're a smoker, you're not really a smoker, but let's just say you're a smoker and smoking is going to kill you potentially in 20 years' time. You might go, you know what, that's fine. I don't see the risk now. It's not causing me any harm now. You might continue to smoke for any number of reasons. That could be one of them. If I said to you, you've ever smoked now and it's going to kill you tonight, you're probably not going to have a smoke now. So I think that having real-time diagnostics and transmission pathways would help decision-making and behaviour change. And I, and, but I wouldn't want it used in a punitive sense. So it's a good point about the, the immediacy of the effect on the mm. mag of the immediacy of the effect. Yeah. Um, it reminds me of those hand hygiene videos that have been developed, you know, with the colours. Dancers? Well... Oh, I've been to a conference and said that. I've been to a few conferences with anti G dancers, and they're always a hit. <laughs> um, Not with me. <laughs> uh, uh, no, no, the, the hand hygiene where they have the colours, and when you touch something, it changes colour and, uh, yeah, yeah. and stuff. Yeah. So it would be good with that real time genomics, though, that if the result could actually also say, here is the genome. Mm. And this is where it came from. That yeah. guy, couple of doors, couple of beds down. That's where yeah. it came from. Because to do that, then mm. enables us to understand transmission yeah. pathways a lot more. Mm. Which goes to my second wish list mm. on that, and that is to be able to know the relative effect of different transmission pathways for different types of pathogens and subsequent infection. Mm. And so, in that example. Or just, just actually, just use C. difficile as an example for a moment. You know, what's the relative contribution of the environment uh, versus or overlapped with antimicrobial uh, stewardship versus colonization in the gut through um, contamination of food? Those kinds of the air, in, you know, yeah, what's the relative contribution of those? things for every pathogen in an individual circumstance because that would help you tailor 
what you need to do and where you're going to target the resources. So rather than having this blanket, you know, everybody's got to have something clean six times a day or everyone's got to have, wear this type of mask for this type of infection. Understanding the real contribution of everything uh, would be really valuable to, to be able to, to, test, to put those resources and interventions in place. And what would that study look like? Oh, well, I think it's probably a long, many, <laughs> many, many decades away until we have rapid diagnosis <laughs> of genomics. Yeah. Because I don't think that's going to be possible. We're going to rely on modelling for a lot of that. But I think that'd be great. And extending that further, you know, childcare or schools where you, your child is sick, right? And you, do you send them to school? Do you send them to your childcare centre? Be able to go, you know, my child, six years old, is day four of a cold now. The likelihood, the risk to him spreading is going to be X. On average, he's going to spread to three people in the classroom today. But if we wait till tomorrow, that risk is 10%. And, you know, I'm happy to accept that. Same with childcare settings and various other settings. You know, it, it would help inform decision-making, which is quite pie in the sky right now about some of the things that we have to make decisions around. Mm. And not just decisions like PCs, decisions parents um, or people with policy roles about arbitrary cut cutoffs for certain things um, that might be correct or that could be way out either yeah. way. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. I think we're a long way away from that one. <laughs> <laughs> what about as a researcher then, Bill? As a researcher? What was the question again? Rick? If you if you had a, a what, if you got anything as in, apart from money, let's just apart assume research money. research money is apart from research money as an infection control researcher. What would you like to answer or be able to answer, or what would help you answer stuff? What would help me answer stuff? Um, there's, there's so many areas, isn't there? Mm. Really, that we could. But I, I sort of, you know, um, one of the thought, things I thought of was the risk of infection in home care settings. And, mm. you know, it's clearly becoming more prevalent now is sending people home earlier with devices. So when you say home care settings, we're not talking about nursing homes, we're talking about people's homes. Homes, yeah. yes, homes, houses. Um, we're sending people home earlier. People want to stay at home longer. Um, sometimes they need to have devices managed. So, and usually, and that's all a good thing. It keeps people mm. out of hospital. We we assume that we keep people out of hospital less likelihood of yeah. infection. Do we know that? Do we know that? I'm not mm. sure if we. Well, I'm not sure if we do. If uh, I, there has been some work done with bloodstream infections and, and central devices or central line devices. But what about all the other types of infections that we mm. have to deal with and manage? And so not not just risk, but also resource. We're going to have to have more resources in our home setting to mm. prevent infection. And is it reasonable to expect everybody's home to be? Mm. And the extension... Environment that prevents infection. Yeah. yeah. And so probably the extension from that is when you're having treatment at home, you've also got equipment. And all the other things that go go yeah. with it, and how, how is that? Is the risk more or less in those substances because it's your own floor? You know, clearly if it gets in the wrong place, it's your own floor. It's still a problem. But yeah. you know, is that is it less of a risk? Is it the same sort of risk as healthcare? Or do we expect people to be cleaning stuff down or not? Yeah, 
if someone's got certain types of infections in the home, should we be thinking about better air quality for you know, for those individuals? Um, Presumably, you know, they will be having regular visits to a healthcare setting for whatever they might be requiring. So, there's, is there does that compound the risk? Mm. So, I look, I'm doing a lot of speculation, but I think some of some of the basic science would be just looking at what are the risks comparable mm. to to hospital settings. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, it made me think about you know cooking at home, and uh, you know when you cut up chicken and raw chicken. I don't know about you. My kids are also quite paranoid about when I'm cooking. They cut raw chicken. Raw chicken. How many gloves do you wear? Yeah, well, I don't wear any gloves. But you know what I mean. <laughs> you know that sort of concept of like you're always cautious about it and you wipe mm-hmm. things down. Mm-hmm. I wonder where like, clearly the risk was raw chicken. I'm not denying that, but. Um, Great. Go back to my point about understanding the relative risk of stuff. It'd be really interesting yeah. to know, uh, you know, those types of things so that we're not over, overcooking things and we're not undercooking things. It's a bit like, um, I, I guess my other wish thinking about within my environmental sort of interest had on, and I don't know if we'll, we'll ever get there. Maybe we will, but what type of cleaning or disinfection is best in what type of circumstance? Is it UVC? Is it hydrogen peroxide? Is it a disinfectant wipe? Is it microfiber? Is it soap and water? Right? And and in what circumstance do we need to use different things? I think we're get, starting to get there, starting to get a bit of evidence on that. Again, they're really hard things to achieve because you're trying to pull about not just the effect of cleaning, but the type of cleaning intervention and all the human context factors that go along with that, which are near impossible to control for. So, you know, that, but that would be, and, and then extending that in different settings, you know, what does that risk look like in hospitals compared to your home setting that you talked about, compared to childcare, compared to aged care? Um, so is, you, is your question, what's the minimal amount of cleaning you can get away with? <laughs> it could be. Yeah. To, 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 That's what it's sounding like. <laughs> what's the minimum amount of cleaning I need to do? <laughs> Well, maybe not the minimum, but what's the what's the minimum to get to the acceptable threshold of whatever that threshold is? Because yeah. we might be overcooking it, and sometimes, yeah, and we might not be in many other times too. We might need a lot more. So, I guess in practice, we tend to use the same materials mm. across a healthcare setting. Mm. The same, mm. <coughs> but, but does, the, does the whole healthcare setting need all that? Can, can, yeah, you know, do, in every circumstance, in every individual, and what we can't control for really in small sort of studies, even in large studies, is all the human factors that go along with that. Yes. You know, the variables that, you know, that's a tool for another day. But, um, yes. yeah, I've had some recent experience with that, which is we'll, we'll save that one up. But, um, yeah, so that also is it my terms as, an, as a researcher. What's your research uh, mm. wish list? Um, apart from money. Oh, apart from money. I think having access... In the short, in the medium to short term, what would be good is to be able to be able to have standardised surveillance definitions and standardised approaches to surveillance and have that data readily available. I think but we did have standardised surveillance. Definitions. We haven't standardised in every hospital, Phil. <laughs> every hospital has their own standardised definitions, <laughs> um, and in some states, but. Um, you know, be able to not just have standardization, but have that universally and appropriately applied and have the validity that goes alongside that. But moreover, being able to access those data readily, because a lot of the research 
that we try and do them in the biggest costs is data collection and having that done in a consistent way. You think about, you know, UTIs and pneumonia, right? Most common infections, but no one's going to go and do surveillance on them all the time because it's too costly. It's, true. Yeah. it's just too much manpower, too costly or, or person power, I should say. So, you know, uh, but if we had a way of doing that, right, and that being readily available, we could evaluate all these other things a lot better when it comes to what interventions work and don't work. So for me, it always comes back to having good, reliable data would be great, yeah. accessible. Well, could I just take that a bit further then? Mm. So I, I think we need to change the definitions of infection. Mm. I think we need to remove the human element mm. um, and use semi-automated or fully automated surveillance which means we need to change the definitions. Yeah. And the reason, if, if I think you just said that the reason that UTI surveillance isn't done is because it's too hard, because the definition is too complex. Well, it's too complex to do it in its current, because of the current yeah. definition. Yeah. Too, too, timely. Too, 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 too timely. If yeah. we had a simpler definition of a UTI, it doesn't need mm. to be 100% perfect, but it needs mm. to be consistent and uniformly applied. It could be semi-automated or could fully be, automated. We could all do UTI surveillance. Yeah, if it was fully yeah. automated, perhaps. Yeah. So, are you saying the definitions are actually inhibiting? Well, you could look at it that way then. So maybe the wish list is well. The wish list maybe is the twofold. Wish list is, good, is better updated definitions. Is definitions that will be able to be more efficiently undertaken but still need to be acceptable. You know, if you think about all those criteria about what's a good surveillance definition, you know, timeliness and one of of those characteristics is acceptability. So you can come up with something uh, automated that people will go, that's a lot of crap. Mm-hmm. And in which case you can have no buy-in from the people you're trying which to change. has happened in the past. Yeah. First-hand experience. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it, it's simplistic as it sounds to have, well, it's an automated UTI sounds ideal, yes. But we'll probably lose a lot of people who will go, well, I don't believe in that definition. So how about we co-design definitions, Brett? We engage various didn't you, didn't you do some work on this film in, in terms of discrete choice experiments? Uh, that was... That wasn't about definitions. Oh, okay. No, it was about yeah. systems. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's, but it's not just having those surveillance data standardised. It was actually being able to readily access those yeah. data. Yeah. So, yeah. so having that in a, oh, dare I say, a national surveillance database where um, you could access that information to be able to evaluate, and even locally to be able to evaluate what you're doing yeah. in a much more holistic way. Yeah. There's a lot more data because because it's automated than what we do. You know, one of the challenges with infection control evidence is it's difficult to do research. It's difficult to do high quality research in infection control. Why? Because they're relatively rare events, relatively rare in the context of other other research. So you mean you need a lot of people and a lot of hospitals to actually really demonstrate something's going to work or not in, a, in an RCT. So that's near impossible to do. Practically, it's a lot of things that we need to do. So we do rely on the other available evidence that we've got. And um, so we could fix some of these things. We can get much better evidence for the science of infection control mm. more broadly. Well, good. A uh, little bit of work to do ahead of us. Oh, just a little bit, yeah. 
Get cracking with those AI uh, <laughs> good computer well, Let's uh, let's get some electronic data. Let's get some new definitions. Let's survey some stuff we probably need to survey and put yeah. a bit more common. And find out a bit more about transmission. Transmission, transmission pathways, you know, I think are just really, really great to be able to to know a bit more about that. And mm-hmm. I think that's that's gonna really I think it will explode in the next ten years, our understanding of that. Particularly, genomics becomes yeah. um, more to the fore. Yeah. Uh, um, we will understand some of those things hopefully a lot, a lot better than what we do now. Yeah. Well, Phil, good to see you, Brett. You too. Nice good chatting. Chat. Must yeah. be time for a wine. I think it is. Yep. All right. Catch you soon. Ciao. Bye bye.